This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 174th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Batman Gordon's Law, number one from DC Comics, cover dated December 1996. But first, a little feedback. And maybe it was the fact that Free Comic Book Day was canceled in 2020, then delayed this year, totally moved around the calendar. But we don't have a ton of FCBD feedback. And I can't say that I recall seeing tons of Free Comic Book Day posts. Maybe when it returns to May next year, that will change. Billy D. did say it was great to hear about my adventures, especially since FCBD is back. It sounds like the sales and freebies were a good haul. Cheers. Yes, Billy, they were. Dr. Ange commented that although he was not around on the day itself, that his store did pull the Blade Runner FCBD book for him. Excellent story. The current two books set in the Blade Runner universe are both fantastic, and I encourage all fans of that movie to pick them up. That is good customer service, Ange. On my adventures in the week leading up to the big day, Ange commented that my trip to the dime sale sounded like $5 well spent. I can only hope I run into a dime sale at some point. Well, Ange, clean living. That's the secret. Clean living. That's really all I can say. And he commented on my comments about the proper way to say DNA agents, or is it DN agents? Or maybe both of those are wrong. I always thought it was DNA gents, like they're a fine group of classy, upstanding, genetic gentlemen. Hmm. Anyway, glad you scooped up as much awesomeness as you did. Great episode. Thank you, Ange. DNA gents. You win, Doc. You win. Chris Willette did say that it was a fun episode. And both M and my brother-in-law, Phil, both reiterated that they had a good time that day. My wife, mixed feelings, let's just say that. There's a lot of comic book stores for her, okay? That's all I'm saying. Social media love for last episode came from Manuel from Buy Indie Comics Day. Sir Luke Giaconetti, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, Vic in Phoenix, Karen from Between the Pages, James Williams from Karen, Clinton from Fan Film Fridays, Chris Lydon, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Sir, I was Joe, Herman from the Longbox of Darkness, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, the notorious JJG, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, Mark Radelich, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, 
Billy D for Magazines and Monsters, Sherlockian C, The Mark's Mess Podcast, author Jennifer DeRoss, Jason in Hawaii, The Scary Stuff Podcast, artist Lauren Skinkus, Old School Ross Chris from Professor Frenzy, It's a Show, and our listeners of the year, the kind and lovely Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. So, let's just dive into this comic book then. Batman, Gordon's Law Number 1, had a cover price of $1.95, meaning you would think that I got this comic at a nice and reasonable enough 87% markdown. But I bought this comic at a recent super sale at World's Greatest Comics, Westerville, Ohio, from a dime box. So technically speaking... I got this at basically a 95% discount. Thank you very much. And I actually mean that, Jeff, Keith, the team at World's Greatest. Thank you very much. The cover by Klaus Jansen is an upshot of James Gordon. We see him from below, seeing most of his body. He looks grim, and in his right hand is his service revolver. All of this is in a sepia-ish olive tone, a nice foreboding sense of drama and dangers communicated. In the background, we do see the bat signal shooting up towards the sky, and the logo of the title, Gordon's Law. The word law has a total of six bullet holes in it, which also communicates the crime action genre of the story. The story, Dirty Deal, was written by Chuck Dixon, with art by Klaus Jansen. We start with an action scene. Did I mention that this was written by Chuck Dixon? Because, yeah, we start with an action scene. What we start with is a guy with a gun, wearing a mask, screaming into a phone. That that's just the first one. You better get on the ball or there'll be more. A lot more. We then switch to Commissioner Gordon's narration, saying that when the phone rings at four in the morning, it's always bad news. The commissioner arrives at the scene of a heist, joining his police force at a bank in Gotham City. Bullock tells them they have hostages, at least a dozen Federal Reserve guards and drivers. Gordon tells the tactical team to stand down. Fed banks aren't built to hold off robbers. They're built to hold off armies. Inside, the masked guy from the first page, the guy who made the phone call, argues with his partners over whether killing the first hostage was a great idea. But the phone call guy is pretty adamant. They'll fold when we pitch some bodies out onto Greer Street. During attempted negotiations, a police unit calls in saying that the robbers have broken through a tunnel and are emerging from the subway four blocks north of the bank. Smoke's pouring out of the subway stops on 10th. Figuring out that a steam tunnel could be used to connect the Federal Reserve Bank and the subway, Gordon orders the bulk of his force, including Bullock, Montoya, the SWAT team, to this new location. He remains behind 
with a small contingent of the force, a fraction of the team, to clear the hostages out of the bank. And as they enter, Gordon gets another call from Bullock, saying that the earlier police call must have been a hoax. No explosion, no perps, nothing but us cops. What are you saying, Harvey? The problem is that the robbers are still in the bank and they are now facing a much smaller police presence and one that, frankly, was not expecting a firefight. The bad guys open fire on Gordon and his reduced force before escaping in an armored truck. They blasted their way south on Grand to the River Drive and were gone. And that wasn't the worst of it. In addition to four officers killed and two crippled during their getaway, the Hoods killed all the hostages. The armored truck is found the next day, minus any of the thieves, and minus the $6 million in uncirculated $1,000 bills that they had made off with. At a funeral service for the fallen officers, Commissioner Gordon, Sarah Essen, and Barbara Gordon are approached by Pat Doherty, who used to run the 23rd Precinct, a sort of adopted Jimmy when he was new to Gotham. He offers his condolences and tells Gordon to find him should he need to talk. Sarah and Barbara both express disdain and mistrust of Pat, with Gordon assuring them that he's not a jerk. That's just his Irish charm. Two months later, some of the bills show up in an FBI raid out west. The money had entered the machine of Underworld USA. And then six months after that, one of the $1,000 bills shows up in Gotham, pinned to a corpse's shirt. Gordon calls on Batman for help in turning up a lead, and the Cape Crusader wants to analyze the bill himself. Uh, Not a chance, Gordon tells him. They think maybe the bill was to serve as a, a warning of some sort? But to who? And by who? Meanwhile, Captain Hugh Danzizen of GCPD's Robbery Division proposes a deep cover assignment to a brand new recruit literally right out of the academy, Officer Bell. Bell agrees. I'm whoever you need me to be. Danzizen takes Bell's shield and tells him his contact will phone him. He'll be the only person from the department you'll see. When a vice squad arrest Checkers Hoagland in a drug bust, Gordon gets into it with Dan Zizen, mostly about Gordon messing up that Federal Reserve heist. But then, the cops get their first real break. Hoagland requests to speak with Gordon personally and tells him he has some info for him. Gordon asks why he's showering him with all these favors. You're a bastard, Gordon, but you're an honest one. A few small bits of Hoagland's info pays off, and so they talk about a deal, and Hoagland drops the bombshell. The Fed heist. It was pulled off by cops. When Gordon checks surveillance video of the heist and finds that the tapes have been erased, 
This strengthens his suspicions that Hoagland's claims may well be true. That would explain a lot. Like how they got on the emergency services frequency to lead us away from the bank. How they played our game better than us. He meets with the DA to explore getting Hoagland his deal. Responding to an email from Batman, Gordon meets the Dark Knight detective atop the GCPD building. Batman has learned that Junior Manklin is working with a local gang and paying them in $1,000 bills. In response, Gordon tells Batman that he doesn't want any more help on the case in a progressively more heated exchange. I don't want you to look into this anymore. This is a police matter. Aren't they all? Gordon explodes on him. No! You're not police. Whatever you are to this city, you are not a cop. And on the last page, Gordon storms off. You're an obstruction. Stay out of this. For both of us. To be continued. In 1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? And we're back. I feel that I should start this analysis section of the episode with an action scene of some kind, in the spirit of Chuck Dixon. So, let me try this. They got me pinned down, coming at me from every side, but we're back. Nah, I think Chuck does it better than I do. I have heard a number of interviews with Dixon, and he does say that one of his writing secrets, especially for writing comics, is to start with action. 
Look at his comic book issues, and the vast majority start with fights or some other dramatic action sequence right there, starting on the very first page. It does make me wonder if he did that for his Simpsons comics. Similarly, I've never read any of his prose work, and I wonder if he starts every chapter with action or a fight. Just curious. There were a lot of details in here that I will talk about in terms of the police investigation, but I want to talk about the nature of the crime first, the nature of the heist, because it touched, tangentially perhaps, on my area of academic expertise, of finance, of money and banking. First, I don't know if I emphasize this enough during the synopsis, but this wasn't a standard bank branch that was being robbed. It was a Federal Reserve Bank. Now, every bank is a part of the Federal Reserve system in the U.S., but I was interpreting this to mean that this is one of the 12 actual Fed banks spread across the country when it was divided into 12 districts when the Federal Reserve began operation a little over a hundred years ago. The map of the 12 Fed regions is actually quite an interesting snapshot of where the American population lived in the early 1900s because these depositories were clustered in the north and the east, where the U.S. population was clustered at the time. The entire western United States, California, Arizona, Oregon, Nevada, etc., that is all in one district, because those states were so sparsely populated at the turn of the prior century that combined, they represented just one-twelfth of the U.S. population. Crazy. There has been some adjustment to that to add some more resources for the 12th district, but they have not done a full redraw of the Fed map since then. If you look at the $1 bills currently in your possession, you will see that each one has a letter on it from A to L, the first 12 letters of the alphabet, each one related to the one of the 12 districts. At this exact moment, I have three singles in my wallet, two from the Cleveland Bank and one from San Francisco. Most likely, your singles will be more highly represented by the nearest Fed location to you, for me, that is Cleveland. But this does bring up the question, which of the 12 Fed banks or Fed cities is Gotham City? Because this is clearly the Gotham City Federal Reserve. Now, the 12, again, they're uh, listed numerically, but also associated with those letters A through L. And this pretty much represents the country running from east to west. The 12 Fed cities are Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Richmond, Atlanta, Chicago, St. Louis, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Dallas, and San Francisco. To me, it's pretty obvious that Gotham, at least in this iteration, is a proxy for New York City, although Chicago has been proposed as a Gotham analog as well. I know. I know. There was once a DC Atlas published. 
I don't know that that holds water. I don't think it was a reference guide for editors and writers and artists. And I hear the Superman fans already kvetching. If New York City is Gotham, what does that make Metropolis? And I do have a couple of answers for that. But the first, the most important one, I think the primary answer is to remember. It's all pretend. But I do like the explanation that Metropolis is New York by day, especially Manhattan, and Gotham is New York at night. How you would put that on an atlas? Or how the Federal Reserve map of the United States of Earth-1 would attempt to display that? Beats me. (laughs) But in this story, in this context, this is Fed Bank number two, New York. And Gordon is certainly right about these 12 locations, which are, to currency and banking, what Fort Knox is to gold. They are not built to keep out thieves. They are indeed built to keep out armies. The other thing that jumped out at me from the bank heist was the amount stolen and the specifics of what exactly was stolen. And that is the uncirculated $1,000 bills. Now, in U.S. history, the largest denominated currency ever produced was a $10,000 bill, which featured the portrait of, that's right, Salmon P. Chase. It was not meant for personal or commercial use, but for bank-to-bank transfer. Advancements in secure electronic fund transfers have eliminated the need for these larger denominated bills. There was also a $100,000 gold certificate once issued, but that was not technically currency. And every time the U.S. government is facing a debt crisis, someone in the media, someone in politics proposes, why don't we just make a $12 trillion coin and pay off the debt with that? Every time I hear about that, I shake my head so hard, I have a headache for two weeks. But back to the $1,000 bill. And the problem is, as loath as I am to criticize Chuck Dixon, since 1969, we have not used banknotes of greater than $100. Since then, we've had no more $500, $1,000, or $10,000 bills. So this notion of uncirculated $1,000 bills, it's either 27 years out of date or the financial systems of Earth-1 are about three decades behind those of Earth-Prime. And you decide which is the case. Which brings us to the amount stolen from the Fed Bank, $6 million. And here... We may have a Dr. Evil in Austin Powers situation. I don't mean to dismiss $6 million. It was a lot of money for Lee Majors as Colonel Steve Austin in the 1970s. And even with 25 years of inflation since this comic was published, it's the equivalent of about $10.5 million today, which is starting to sound like real money. Except that in one panel of the comic, I counted six bad guys. And if we assume equal distribution, that's still less than two million per thief. And to break into the most secure bank in the city, 
a city that Batman calls home, leaving many dead bodies in the wake? I don't know that two million is high enough to pay for that risk. Look, I'm sure it's a dream payday for an average, down-on-their-luck hench person. And to be fair, it's possible that hench people are not greatly skilled at deferred gratification or properly assessing risks and rewards. It's just that even if you're in that line of work, I don't know that that's enough of a payday for that particular job. Maybe crank that number up two or three times. Because if you're talking about $1,000 bills, the stack required to get to 10 or 15 or 20 million is not out of the question. Now, of course, from a plot standpoint, there may be more behind this all. We, we certainly get hints of that in the issue. Maybe it's not just about the money. Maybe it's about something bigger. Because this is just the first issue of a four-parter. So there may be things going on the scenes that we've just gotten hints at so far. So I don't want to come down too hard on that right here. Now, we are going to talk about some more plot things. And before I jump on the bandwagon and talk about how great Chuck Dixon does writing this story, spoilers, mention has to be made of Klaus Janssen's art. It's gritty. Some of the details are quite good. The faces, Gordon's face in particular. Shading, the way the cops look, the rainy night in Gotham. I I know, what other kind of night is there ever in Gotham? But there's also a heaviness to the drawing, a darkness to the lines that does not fully appeal to me. It's not a deal-breaker. You know, for me, art is almost never a deal-breaker. But, that being said, I I I do think Jansen might not be well-suited for inking his own work. Maybe he needs to collaborate to get the best out of his skills. At least that is what my very uninformed eyes uh, tell me. But back to the writing, back to the plot, back to the hints that we've gotten so far, and back to those unanswered questions. Because that is one of the strengths of the issue, that it leaves us with a lot of questions. That's exactly what a mystery story is supposed to do. And I like that, the sense of anticipation of what's going to be revealed as the storyline goes on. Who were the corrupt cops that were involved and why? How far up does that go? Look, the idea of corrupt cops in Gotham does not exactly have me looking for my fainting couch. We know this is the case. We expect this. But to see it in action, to be right in the middle of it, with the GCPD as it is happening, that was dramatic. Solid work there. And the big thread that we don't see where it's leading yet is the undercover kid. He was literally pulled into that operation with Dan Zizan before his police academy graduation ceremony. Probably because they didn't want there to be any pictures of the kid in his bright clean, new patrol uniform floating around. So we don't know how the kid is involved in the heist, or how Dan Zizan is involved. 
we assume they must be, because they're in the story. <laughs> Otherwise, their presence makes no sense. But the extent of their involvement, the nature of that involvement, that is what we don't know. And we don't even know whose side they're on. Was the kid's job to infiltrate this specific bunch of bad cops? If so, has he become a bad cop? We don't know. And a quarter of the way through a mystery story, not knowing stuff like that is just fine. And again, we don't know about Dan Zies and what his role is. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. And during the unedited portion of the synopsis, I must have stumbled through at least five different pronunciations. D-A-N-Z-I-Z-E-N. Come on! Who has two Zs in their name? And why didn't editorial stop this nonsense? So I settled on Danzizen and edited out, I hope, all of the various stumble-bumming over various different versions of how to pronounce that. And why did I settle on Danzizen? Easy. And let this be a lesson to you young podcasters out there. I settled on it because of all the options. It was the easiest one for me to say consistently. <laughs> so, we have these fundamental questions being asked. And I, for one, as a fan of Chuck Dixon, especially in this genre, I'm confident that we will get answers to those, and probably pretty good answers. To me, when it comes to crime comics, mob comics, private investigator, police comics, that sort of whole broad category, Chuck Dixon is at the same high level as Ed Brubaker, Greg Rucka. All three are at the top of their games when writing this type of story. Brubaker and Rucka, of course, collaborated on the epic Gotham Central, what about a decade after this series? I'm just saying, if I see Chuck Dixon's name on any type of book like this, or a war book, I pick it up with confidence that I'll get a quality story. I've had this comic for a long time. I was getting out of comics around this era, mid-90s. So I wonder if I had it in the collection when it was fresh, if I bought it fresh, or if I picked it up later. So yes, technically, I did not buy this for a dime. But I did see it recently at a dime sale, and that's how it qualifies for coverage on this show. I've only gotten one series of comic books bound, but one of the batches I've considered binding are this mini and the mini that preceded it, Batman GCPD, also written by Dixon. Then there are two other minis, from a few years before, Gotham Knights and Gotham Knights 2, which I'm pretty sure were both written by John Ostrander. So those I was considering as well, either as two separate bound books of eight issues each, or maybe one mega 16-issue Gotham City Life on the Streets collection. I haven't read any of those 16 issues, save this one, in a long time but I do have positive feelings about all of them. And this one certainly held up. I like the gritty, I like the street, I like the police procedural. And I like the interaction that Gordon and Batman have at the end of this issue. 
the request that Batman stay out of this one, stay out of this specific case. I don't know if Bats is involved in later issues in the mini, or to what extent he is, but I like that Gordon at least drew a line right here. This is about the police, and the police will handle it. And I think the commissioner has a point here. When you're dealing with an internal affairs type of situation, cops investigating other cops, you really have to get all of the I's dotted and all the T's crossed from the legal perspective. You want the most open and shut court case you can have? You've got to handle everything right. No mistakes, no technicalities, and no vigilantes. And one thing in that area of the, the police procedural element that Dixon does really well here is handle the passage of time. We have two months pass before the first bill pops up out in Washington State, and then another six until the guy shows up in Gotham with one pinned to his chest. That seems realistic to me, but it's something you never get in crime fiction. TV series, a movie, a novel... There may be other investigations in the background, but in 44 minutes, or 105 minutes, or 245 pages, you have to solve this one crime, and you can't take eight months of the passage of time to do it. But Dixon does it here, and I think that's probably better. More realistic, at least. One other nice touch is that Gordon talks to the informant in prison, Checkers Hoagland twice, so he can verify some things in between, and then he gets the big news dropped on him about the involvement of cops in the crime, and then he goes to the DA to propose the deal to formalize Hoagland's cooperation. That takes time. Time is passing. And we've just seen so often in other dramatizations of police work where the Police make a deal right away to get cooperation, shortcutting the process for narrative reasons, to be sure. But again, here in not that many panels, Dixon again shows the drawn-out process that really has to occur. Meeting with Hoagland, time passing, meeting with Hoagland, time passing, meeting with the DA. That's the drawn-out process, the procedure for actually getting cooperation. And so, this is just another small gem, I think. And what Hoagland asks for seems really reasonable. He's in on a murder rap that he wants dropped to manslaughter, and then he wants to be shipped out of state to serve out his time where the GCPD can't reach him or wreak vengeance on him for ratting them out. Those seemed simple and eminently doable. And again, realistic asks. Because, again, we've seen too many fictional instances of prisoners making outrageously excessive, unrealistic demands in exchange for their cooperation, and then having those demands met. This, on the other hand, certainly by comparison, seems much more realistic, much more possible. And it's the attention to details like that that give me confidence that I am in the hands of a solid professional, a highly skilled storyteller. The Verdict 
On Batman, Gordon's Law number one, when judging a number one issue, we use Paul Spatero's grading rubric, which boils down to a one-question assessment. Do you want to read number two? And on this one, that is a definite yes. There are questions hanging out there that I want to know the answers to. This is a definite quarter bin deal. As a matter of fact, I've enjoyed this comic so much that I plan to read the rest of the mini, although I won't cover them here on this show. If I remember, I'll slide those three books into hashtag Crime Comics Month, which I believe is May, and then talk about those on that month's Comics Reading Journal. And that wraps up our coverage of Batman, Gordon's Law, number one, bringing episode 174 to a close. Next time, we will be crossing over into a new dimension. A dimension of sight and sound and panels and gutters and captions. By covering Twilight Zone number two, from now comics cover dated December 1991. And like happens every 25 episodes, I'll be joined by our very good buddy from Back to the Bins, the aforementioned Paul Spatero. My apologies to the estate of Rod Serling. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, Commissioner Gordon, Chuck Dixon, Crime Comics, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.